Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I am going to talk about Naj. Naj is pronounced Naj. It is it is spelled N A G Y, like like Nagy or Nagy, but it's pronounced Naj. I've had many patron requests for many years, incidentally, to talk about Naj. He is an interesting character in the field of therapy, more specifically family therapy, and he's one of the greats, and he has a very specific theory that's actually quite interesting and I think can be understood by lay people. It's not, it's not too complicated, and it, it has some interesting, very unique elements to it. He really had a way with language that, and a way with metaphor that I think really uh, makes his theory compelling to people, which is why I'm guessing a lot of patrons have been asking me to talk about it. Um, my relationship with Naj has gone back uh, 24 years uh, when I was first introduced to his theory in graduate school. And then after graduate school, when I became an instructor, I began lecturing about Naj right away. The classes I taught involved Naj right away. And so I've been lecturing about Naj for 22 years. In fact, my class that's currently running right now, uh, my family of origin class that I teach, all new, all first quarter students in the master's program at my university, Antioch University, Seattle, take this class called Family of Origin. And, and we talk about a small set of theories. Uh, one is, is my own brand of psychodynamic family therapy. Another is Bowenian therapy. We talk about Whitaker and Satir a little bit. But we mainly talk about Naj, Bowen, and object relations. So Naj is a, is a big part of this very important class that we have at the university. He, I, you know, I was thinking about it, and I, I would say that he is one of the least known among the popular theorists. You know, there are thousands upon thousands of theorists, people who have stepped forward and published something saying that they have a new way of looking at psychology or psychotherapy. And I would say, I don't know, back of the napkin, rough estimate, I would say eh, 50, 50 of those people actually are still known to a majority of, uh, you know, like if you just collected 100 different psychotherapists and said, rattle off all the different theorists or major figures in psychotherapy that you know. Well, if I included, well, let's just keep it a theorist because there's major figures like Irvin Yalom, for example, but I wouldn't call Yalom a theorist, right? So, you know, Freud is a theorist, Jung, Adler, uh, you know, Bowen, Whitaker, Satir, Naj, these people are what I would call theorists, people who put forth a, a model of psychotherapy. And so I'd say there's probably a set of about 50 that are the most commonly uh, cited or referred to or included in psychotherapy books. And I would say Naj is, is in last place. Uh, it means he is in the top 0.001% of theorists who have ever, ever existed, but it also means that he's up against a lot of tough competition. So it's interesting because in family therapy theory books, Naj is included sometimes and sometimes not. Which is interesting. So, so, but, uh, so I don't know why I'm telling you all that, but that's just part of the context here. Um, just in a nutshell, what he did is he condensed psychodynamic theory, uh, theory psychoanal psychoanalytic theory, because that's where he came from, 
and he combined it with system theory, systems theory. He also combined some humanistic uh, ideas, and he he sort of interwove everything. So that's actually what I I have attempted to do throughout my career is integrate psychodynamic, psychoanalytic theory with systems theory, and I feel like that really explains people to me really well, my integration of it. It's my particular integration. I hope one day to publish it. I don't know. We'll see. I, I have some unpublished documents that I've typed up. But anyway, the point is, is that mine is actually quite complicated. I, it's not, I, I try to keep it simple. I've simplified some things, but it's not easily understood. Whereas I think that Naj's theory is actually much easier understood, even though he is integrating the same two theories. I think there's something lost in the simplification, in, in my opinion, which is why I, I don't really adhere very closely to Naj. But, but I think it, it's a it, it it's a good integration, and I use it indirectly all the time. I, I'm never, or I'm rarely thinking, "Ooh, I'm using Naj right now." That's with my clients. It's pretty rare that I'm thinking explicitly about it. But if I thought about all my different practices and approaches and way of thinking about clients and and people in my personal life, Naj absolutely is there. It's just not an explicit thing. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about his life. I'm going to talk about his history. I'm going to talk about the theory, obviously. I'm going to talk about the critique of the theory, and I'm also going to talk about how I use Naj's contextual therapy model. Model, not model, model. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor and a podcaster. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast and you're listening to this on the regular podcast feed, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Go there, become a patron, and when you become a patron, you'll get access to this episode and hundreds of other episodes in which we do deep dives into various different topics. Uh, a lot of them are theory-related. And also, when you become a patron, you don't have to listen to a vast majority of the commercials, which might bother some people. And remember that a portion of your month monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, patrons. Thank you for becoming a patron. That's super cool of you. All right, Naj, 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 Naj. So his full name is Ivan Bazormenyi Naj. Uh, there's actually kind of an interesting history behind his name, but I won't bother with it right now. Um, but everyone just refers to him as Naj. <laughs> so just know that he has a, a long name that I can't pronounce, uh, and it ends with Naj, and, and everyone just calls him Naj. He was born in 1920 in Budapest, or Budapest, not quite sure how you pronounce that. He was born into a long line of prominent judges in Hungary. One of his, I think his father was a Supreme Court judge in Hungary, and his grandfather was a judge, and his great-grandfather was a judge. And in this way, this sort of planted the seeds that he would later integrate into his theory regarding fairness and judging and, and you know, I'll get into it later. But I think that his, his life with, in a household of judges, I think, influenced his eventual theory. In the same way that, you know, Freud growing up with some 
sexual tension between him and his mom, I, I'm assuming, influenced his psychosexual Oedipus phase. Uh, uh, Naj was uh, just, t- uh, there were only two kids in the family, which I think was a little bit rare back then, just two boys, him and his brother. But he had a big extended family who lived in the area, and he hung out with the big extended family a lot. And this planted the seed for his emphasis on extended family and uh, for his comfort with being around a bunch of family members. From all accounts, it seems like he really enjoyed his extended family. He grew up and married a woman named Maria. They had one son. Uh, World War II occurred, and, you know, he's right in the epicenter of Nazi uh, Germany occupation, and he attended medical school during that time, and uh, he wasn't Jewish, so he didn't have to flee the way that Freud and a lot of other people did. In 1948, after the war, we have Soviet occupation, basically, and uh, during this time, at the age of 28, he got his degree in psychiatry in Hungary and then became trained as a psychoanalyst. So at this time, historically, psychoanalysis was, was extremely popular, particularly in that region. And so he was, you know, pro, you know, Freud and all of his initial pupils were around 1910-ish. And so the you know we're talking like second generation psycho uh, analysts were happening at this point, and uh, it should also be it it should also be noted that around this time there were a lot of bubblings around uh, bubblings right <laughs> were a lot of grumblings about about uh, what was considered to be classical Freudian psychoanalytic analytic thought. And there were a lot of people who were thinking, "Eh, I think we are ready for a new thing here. I think we need to expand this a little bit. So because in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there was this huge explosion of all these other ideas. And Naj was a part of that. Okay, so 1948, age 28, 1948, age 28, he got a degree in psychiatry, became trained as a uh, psychoanalyst. And he started working as an assistant professor in Hungary. Then, in 1950, at the age of 30, he emigrated from Hungary to the United States. He spent a little bit of time as a refugee in, I believe, Austria. I'm not sure, but he uh, he fled to the United States. He, you know, he didn't like the Soviet occupation and uh, the way that the Soviet occupation was limiting the ability for him to uh, have the freedoms to practice and research the way that he wanted to. And he eventually made his way to the United States, and he completed his medical degree in Chicago. And then in 1957, uh, so at, at, during this time, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was a sort of mecca of family therapy at the time, and or of, of the world, really. There, people were flocking from all over the world to uh, move to Philadelphia to or or the area to learn about family therapy and research and all that kind of stuff. And and so Naj was one of those people who went there. In 1957, he went to Philadelphia and started to look into family therapy and started to do some research. And he eventually established the Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute 
for which he was the director there for 20 years after that until uh, 1977. Similar to Lyman Wynn and Murray Bowen during this time, he tried to figure out if the family system was the cause of schizophrenia. There's a fair amount of government research funds, if I remember right, if I remember my history right. Uh, there's a fair amount of government history funds, uh, government research funds that were being allocated to research on schizophrenia. And so these family therapists were these early family therapists like Lyman Wynn, Murray Bowen, and Ivan Naj stepped forward and said, you know, I'll take some of that money and I'll look into schizophrenia through our lens of family therapy. And so this kind of gave these early pioneers in family therapy a a sort of um, head start or a, uh, some funding to kind of get them off the ground, to get them publishing, get them talking, get them researching, uh, get them uh, into the academic research world. And and Naj, uh, you know, did that uh, work, and he began to notice, according to him, that destructive patterns in families often were perpetuated through the generations. So he, when he would have these families, and I'm, I'm not sure if all the families had a schizophrenic member, but when he started treating these families, he was like, huh, isn't it interesting that you have, say, a teenager who is exhibiting problems, and then their parents also exhibit problems, and the parents' parents also had problems. Isn't it interesting how... A, a, a kind of similar theme gets passed down through the generations. So he started inviting family members to psychotherapy at first, and, and this was similar. This was a similar progression for many family therapists at the time. At first, they were just looking into the relationship between the patient and the mother. They were like, okay, we really have to look at the relationship between the mother and the patient. And then these guys were like, huh, well, we really got to bring in the father, too, because, you know, back then it was almost all heterosexual uh, parents. And so they said, well, I got to bring in the husband. So so because the husband's part of the problem, too. You know, we got to we got to talk about him. And this is at a time and it really is still going on today in which the vast majority of counseling approaches and treatment plans do not involve family members. They want to isolate the individual uh, for various different reasons. I I'd speculate because most people are terrified of family therapy. <laughs> In fact, um, one of the, so we, ha we have at the, at my university, we have a number of different programs and often the, the vast majority of people who come to our campus are actually interested in one of two programs. They're interested in my program, which is the Marriage and Family Therapy program, but they're also in interested in the, in the mental health counseling program. And so people will come to open house or these information meetings, and one of the dominant questions that these people have is, you know, what are the differences between the Marriage and Family Therapy program and the mental health counseling program? Uh, which one should I choose? How do I know which one is best for me? And one of the questions I always ask people, the crowd, as, I, as I'll say, well, the question, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, when you think about the prospect of working with couples and families, are you terrified to the point where you would rather avoid that? Or are you terrified to the point where you want to actually try it because it excites you? Is it in a, are you excited by the fear? Or are you, you know, nauseous from the fear <laughs> or, you know, are, is, does the fear repulse you from it? Because if you're, 
if you're terrified to the point of re- of revulsion to working with couples and families, then you probably should be a mental health counselor. Whereas if 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 the prospect of working with you know with couples and families is terrifying to you, but also it actually excites you because you're you, you're interested in that kind of thing, then you know pick marriage and family therapy. Um, and you know, there's a whole bunch of other differences too, and a, and a ton of overlap. By the way, uh, mental health counselors and marriage and family therapists, for the most part, are basically identical, especially when you compare them to other kind of groups. Of course, people would argue with me about that, and certainly there are some differences. But really, uh, both provide the same jobs, both are similar amounts of time in graduate school, both are seen similarly by the public both get paid the same you know it's it's all and and then after a while both tend to have the same sorts of clients uh, across the two uh, professions but anyway my point is is that Naj and these other early family therapists were bumping up against that in the field psychoanalysis was notorious for saying you know leave your family members at home, we need to isolate you so that the transference can be clean. We, we don't need the, uh, these, these other people in the family session in the session to muddy the waters. We need to be very clean. Whereas these, these people were rebelling against that and saying, well, wait a second, uh, maybe there's actually some usefulness to having family members in the room. And the first thing they did again was they said, well, let's bring the mom in the room. And then they started, eh, you know, maybe bring the dad in the room. And then they're like, uh, you know what? I think we need to bring in the siblings of the patient, even though they, they're not exhi- exhibiting any symptoms. I think we need to bring them in the room. And and then they started to discover that the the real problem often was not what the patient was being identified as having the problem. You know, a a patient, a teenager is identified as being depressed and isn't doing well in school. And so the family brings in the the teenager and the the teenager is the patient but then the family therapists back then they start well let's bring in the moms bring in the dads bring in the siblings and then the family therapists started realizing that the depression was just a symptom of a problem that was going on in the overall family and so that's when they were really and when they actually treated that real problem the depression went away in the kid and a lot of other good things started to happen so that's the basis that's the basis of the foundation and the justification of the foundation of the field of which we call all which we call now marriage and family therapy. So so Naj um he uh did this um and I'm oversimplifying this process you should know that. Um Naj was among a small set of psychiatrists they they were all psychiatrists back then. You didn't have um Many psychologists who were treating people, uh, psychologists were doing research, but psychiatrists, and, and also you didn't have a lot of master's level, what they called social workers back then. You had some. Uh, mainly what we're talking about back then is psychiatrists, medical professionals who decided to go into psychoanalysis, uh, be, you know, become psychoanalytic practitioners. And so he was one of, uh, among a small set of them, who were beginning to see that family therapy was actually really worth it. Um, Ackerman came before him, but uh, around the same time that Naj emerged and started to really look into family therapy, he was among a lot of a lot of other greats in the in the nineteen fifties, including Gregory Bateson, 
as I mentioned, Murray Bowen, Carl Whitaker, Lyman Wynn, and others. And through this work during this time in the 50s and 60s is when he developed what he would call contextual therapy or contextual family therapy. So Naj's, uh, Naj's model is called contextual family therapy. Uh, a lot of people just call it Naj, but <laughs> it's technically not called named after him. Um, it's similar to Bowen. Most people call it Bowenian therapy, but actually his the 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 real technical name is I think oh my god, I'm a terrible instructor for forgetting this. I think it's just called systemic family therapy, which is confusing because anyway. Um okay, so after leaving the institute, he for some reason he left the institute that he founded in Pennsylvania. Um he became the director of family therapy, uh, the Department of Family Therapy at Hahnemann University, which, which is now called Drexel University. He also founded a private family clinic in Amber, Pennsylvania, called the Institute for Contextual Growth. Uh, I read some obituaries or you know, memorials that people, because he died, uh, he died 11 years ago in 2007, and I read a number of uh, memorial statements that people made, and people were talking. His students and his colleagues were talking about how well liked he was by his students and his clients, and and how big he was into social justice, um, as were a lot of the founders of Family Therapy, incidentally, Mnuchin and those kinds of people. Um, so during this time, the '50s, '60s, '70s, he published a number of different publications. And I actually have one of his books right here in front of me. It's published 1965. It's called Intensive Family Therapy, and he edited it with Framo. And there are chapters, wonderful chapters in here by Naj, Framo, Bowen, Ackerman, Lyman Wynn, Carl Ritiker, and others. They named the book Intensive Family Therapy because they saw two types of family therapy at the time. They they saw that the, they saw some people as providing supportive family therapy, which they didn't really delineate very clearly. But I'm, I'm guessing it, it it meant more like list mainly just like Rogerian listening is is my guess, and and so we wanted to delineate his and his the people that he was writing this book with. Uh, their family therapy was intensive, not not just supportive, meaning that it had more depth, it, de- it dealt with transference more, it was more psychoanalytic, I guess, in its roots. It was l- potentially longer t- term, and you the purpose was to work through transference issues with each other. It was just, it was just more intense, and so that's how they saw it. Now, I don't know if the supportive family therapy people liked to be labeled as such back then. I don't really know. It's interesting here in the introduction, it, it has an interesting passage uh, that is, you know, interesting to me. It says, quote, only time will tell whether or not family therapy truly signifies a major turning point or breakthrough in psychiatric thought and method, unquote. It's just interesting because 1965, it would have been very, very early in in the field of family therapy, and they, at the time, 65, had no idea if it would catch on, right? They had no idea if in 2018 that I, a licensed marriage and family therapist, would even be around. And uh, so, 
so although uh, they probably hoped it would completely dominate the field of psychotherapy, uh, it, it didn't do that. But it definitely became bigger and bigger through the 70s and 80s, particularly the 80s, and is now an established profession. It's one of the big professions. You have your mental health counselors, you have your marriage and family therapists, you have your social workers, you have your psychologists, you have your uh, psychiatrists, and you have your psychiatric nurse practitioners, and and there you go, you know, one of the big six. So, um, so we can thank Naj for that. And that's what he was hoping for, and that's what he pushed for. But his his most famous book is called Invisible Loyalties, published 1973. Invisible Loyalty is probably his most famous concept, which I'll get into in a second. So let's go into the 1980s during his life. This would have been when he was in his 60s. And this is when there was an explosion of family therapy, like I said. And Naj was one of the people who benefited from that explosion. He he was one of those people who became popular during the 80s, um, similar to Bowen, Mnuchin, Satir, Whitaker, Framo, etc. So skipping forward to 2001, when he would have been in his 80s, his wife Maria died and he remarried soon after that to a psychiatrist, a, I think a fellow psychiatrist. And then six years later, he died at the age of 87, and he died of complications related to Parkinson's. When I look back on his life and his the sort of broad strokes of his story, it, he has a very similar life to other founders of psychotherapy. He's born in Eastern Europe. He became a psychoanalyst, psychiatrist person. He fled from the Nazis or the Soviets to eventually land in the United States, teaches at a university, conducts research, becomes famous for speaking and writing, founds an institute of some sort, and he died after a long life. And then I eventually talk about him in a patron-only episode, which is a, a similar fate for several other of these kinds of dudes. Okay, so I want to talk a little. So that's the history in a nutshell. Um, again, I think part of the that might be missing is the sense that I got from people who knew him said that he was a really nice guy and he really cared about people and he was eternally dedicated to helping clients and helping trainees learn how to become better therapists, which I can absolutely relate to. So I, w- I want to talk. Sorry, I just dropped something. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the research, and there's not a lot of research looking in Anaj. I think just speculation that the reason for this is because again, Naj is the least popular of the popular theories, so it doesn't get a lot of attention. Also, in, it's in the field of family therapy, which uh, anecdotally to me doesn't have as robust of a uh, research um, funding and effort as other professions do. You know, like the field of psychology has just a ton of research that's happening all the time. Um, counseling has uh, less, but, but a, you know, a good amount of research. And then I, just, again, anecdotally, I would say family therapy has even less. I mean, there's just less family therapists anyway. I think of the six different um, professions, I'm guessing at the, in last place are family therapists and nurse practitioners, psychiatric nurse people. So anyway, so there's not a lot of research in family therapy 
happy to begin with. Um, there's a lot, you know, I mean, you could, you would never, you could read, you could, it, you could, you could never read all of it in your lifetime. Let's just put it that way. So it's not like, you know, it's just a small amount, but, but uh, having said that again, relatively uh, fewer research articles in this field and Naj is just a smaller part of that. And so there's just not a lot. Plus I don't think Naj really lends itself to, um, to uh, research very well. Bowen, I think, lends himself lends itself a little bit better because you can scale differentiation theoretically on a scale from one to a hundred. Anyway, so here's a few different things I just want to point out. There's a art. There's a research study by Seuss and Van Hecken in in 1990, and in this uh, study, what the researchers did is they interviewed several families. And basically tried to figure out if Naj's theory and model resonated with them, whether or not uh, – and I'll get into the different theory bits in a second. And basically what they found in this study was that it did, that family members uh, really took to the theory and said, yeah, this theory really does make sense. So there was that. I found a dissertation in 2010 – by Adkins, a woman named Adkins from Ohio State University. And in a nutshell, she found that Naj's theory helped explain why some people suffer from intimate partner violence. So Adkins applied Naj's theory to trying to understand domestic violence. And then this third bit here is that there has been some studies looking at the effectiveness, you know, whether or not it's, it's an evidence-based practice Naj's approach. And one study, Fletcher in 1991, found that Naj's approach decreases the chance of divorce to 3%, whereas behavioral therapies have a 38% of divorce. Now, this is dubious to me. I find it to be not likely replicatable or, you know, I I, I don't doubt that this study found this, but I think you'd really have to look at it because basically what they're saying is if a, if a couple goes to behavioral therapy, they have a 38% chance of divorce. And if they go to Naj type of therapy, then they only have a 3% chance of divorce, which is just a drastic effect size and just doesn't seem likely to me. Um, but uh, And I could be reading that wrong, but that's from what I could tell. Okay. Um, so in summary around the efficacy evidence-based uh, therapy for regarding Naj, I would say that it, it's just really hard to research that sort of thing when it comes to Naj. And I'll get more into that in a second. But anyway, so let's get into the model. The model is called contextual therapy or contextual family therapy or simply Naj's theory. <laughs> It's it's one of the major family therapies, as I've been saying, but it's not always included in every family therapy book. I I, I have dozens of family therapy books, and I, I I would estimate that a third of them include Naj's theory, maybe a half. Uh, there are certain family therapy theories that are always included, like structural and strategic and Bowen and experiential, object relations, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, narrative, solution-focused. The, these are things that are always included, and Naj is sometimes included, but not always. It's categorized in a number of different, different ways by different authors. Some call it a transgenerational model because it involves dysfunction in families being 
passed down transgenerationally through the generations. Sometimes it's called an extended family therapy model, meaning that you are involving not just the parents and the kids, but people outside of that. It's sometimes called an integrative theory because Naj himself said he was trying to integrate psychoanalysis with systems family therapy with with humanistic ideas. It's sometimes called an intergenerational model, which makes sense. Or it's sometimes categorized as a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic model, similar to Bowen, mostly because it has to do with past issues being passed down. That's a very psychodynamic idea. Um, and it, and, and there's explicit talk about transference and anyway. Um, so like Bowen and Framo and object relations and psychodynamic family therapy, it's, it's usually just referred to as a, as a transgenerational model. Okay. So his central thesis is the following. He believed that disturbances in individuals and families are a symptom of an imbalance in giving and taking between the family members. An imbalance between giving and taking. An imbalance between how much people are giving and how much people are receiving between each family member. And I'll get more into that in a second. And by the way, everything in this episode is in my words. If you heard another instructor talk about Naj, you would hear them use different language, Be, mostly because this is my interpretation of the model, and I can't help but to sprinkle in my own angle and my own way of seeing and wording things. So just understand that no instructor can replicate the way the originator, originator of the, you know, if Naj were sitting next to me as I was doing this episode, he'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not how I would say it. So, you know, it's just, it, that's just, you know, them's the breaks, kids. Okay. So theory of change. What was Naj's theory of change? He believed that Positive change is possible through building trust among the family family members, which, again, I'll get into more in a second here. He believed that therapists should help family members build trust in the session, that, he, that the therapist should help them bond with each other by helping them balance what is, what is commonly called the ledger of fairness, which I'll get into more in a, uh, in a second here. Basically, to me, when I really do a deep dive into Naj, as I have done recently and have done in the past, I consider it another way of talking about attachment without talking about attachment. You know, when, when typically when we talk about emotionally focused therapy or uh, just attachment-based therapies, we're talking about helping people to attach well, helping people to feel securely attached helping people to, f to feel as though they can trust each other, that they can uh, depend on each other. And the Naja's contextual family therapy, to me, is exactly that, except it uses co a completely different set of language systems and never really refers to attachment. Because at the time, attachment wasn't as big as it did become. Attachment really didn't become as big as it is today until 
recently, maybe the last 20 years. Like when I was in graduate school in the mid-90s, I don't remember attachment being discussed at all. It might have been discussed a little bit. I mean, I can't remember everything that happened. But I don't remember any formal discussion of attachment. Whereas about 10 years ago, then in my sort of circle, attachment became much more prominent. And then for me now, like attachment's everything. So uh, I, I integrate attachment with my object relations systems theory, and it all fits very nicely together for me. But anyway, so that's my kind of look at Nage. It's like it's attachment theory, it's emotion-focused therapy, but in a different language. And that's really true about a lot of different therapies. When Whenever you really get into the different theories, you realize that they're all kind of talking about the same thing, but they're just coming at it from different language systems and different angles. Because in a lot of ways, psychodynamic therapy is also attachment-based, is also related to Nash, because a certain brand of interpersonal relational psychotherapy is basically that. You're just trying to help people to, to better attach and feel just more secure in their attachments and stuff. Anyway, okay. So let's get into the specifics here. One of the sort of overarching concepts is called the ledger of fairness or the ledger of merits and demerits. But I'm going to call it the ledger of fairness because it's easier. So so normally when I lecture on this, I have a whiteboard and I write it all out. So I'm going to try to do it without having that tool at my disposal. So imagine that Everyone basically in their minds, in their unconscious minds, and maybe partially conscious minds, they have this ledger of fairness. Ledger meaning like a, uh, you just have two columns, like a spreadsheet of fairness, let's just call it. And you have two columns. And in one column, you have all the times that you've given to another person. And in the other column, you have every time you've you've gotten something from them, every, every time that they've given something to you. And so, and we have a ledger of fairness that we have basically for everyone that we involve ourselves with. And there's also an overarching ledger of fairness you can talk about, but just to get kind of micro on this. So let's say you're in a, you're in a relationship with a romantic partner and you let's say you gave a, uh, let's see, again, without the whiteboard, it's kind of hard, but so, okay, maybe I'll just get real specific. Okay. So you come home and you, your partner is home watching TV and you walk up to your partner and you say, Hey, how's it going? I love you. I missed you today. And you kiss your partner on the cheek. Well, all of that was a gift in Naja's language that you gave to your partner. You, you didn't, it's not a gift like a box of roses or a, or a diamond ring. It's a gift of love and a gift of attention and a gift of, of loyalty. It's a gift of love. And so you walk in, you walk straight up to your partner and you say, I love you. I missed you. Good to see you. Kiss. And so the way that, so you now have earned credit because you have given you have you've invested you've given something to your partner and now your partner quote unquote owes you now we don't think about it in that sense explicitly but we kind of do right because imagine in that moment you walk up to your partner you say i love you i miss you today kiss great to see you 
What if your partner just ignored you? What if your partner just went like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, good to see you too, I guess. Well, at that moment, you would walk away and you would feel hurt, right? And it would stick with you, right? And that's because in Naja's model, you have an imbalance on your ledger of fairness. Something unfair has happened. You've given something and have not received back. Whereas if your partner were to reciprocate and give back in some way, now they, they could give back in the exact same way. They could say like, oh my God, I missed you too. I love you too. Kiss back. Or they could do something else, you know, like make dinner or something. Or there's, there's a way in which uh, people develop ways of giving and understanding that they're being given to, right? Uh, love languages, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's important to know that everyone has a different sense of that. And culture plays a role, gender plays a role, everything plays a role. So that's a one example. Other examples are big things like, I am going to work really hard while you go to graduate school. That's my gift to you. And there's an expectation in the relationship that there will be, that you'll get something back. Now, we, again, we don't think explicitly about that because we actually really enjoy giving as humans. We like to give to our uh, altruistically to the people we love and, and to people we don't even know. But at the same time, imagine being in a relationship where you gave and gave and gave and got nothing back. You didn't get appreciation back. You didn't get love back. You didn't get um, respect back. That would be hard for, for most people. So, so this is so this is the major Naj metaphor in his model that that guides not only the understanding of pathology but it also guides treatment because the whole idea with treatment is how can you bring that ledger of fairness to to balance how do we understand when one's ledger is out of balance and why is it out of balance and how do we bring it to balance all that kind of stuff okay um, and again. Uh, the the giving and the taking and, and receiving is a subtle thing. It can be very grand, like I'm going to give you $100,000, or it could be very small, like a smile. Um, you know, uh, this actually works uh, a lot. Marketers actually in, c- can use this. You know, people trying to sell you things can use this against you. Because when a salesperson walks up to you and gives you something or gives you information or gives you a big smile and a handshake. There's this innate ledger of fairness imbalance now. Now you kind of owe them in a sense. And salespeople will use that to their advantage. Um, Another thing that people will use to manipulate people this way is the the well-known experiments where um, they, so you have researchers that want to research a community and one of the ways that they used to do it, they probably do it through email now, but back in the day, they would send out surveys in the mail. And they would just send out these bulk mail to everyone in the community, and they, there would be a letter, they'd open it up, and they'd say, please take a half an hour and fill out the survey, put it back in the envelope, send it back to us. And the response rates were usually abysmal, right? It was like 2% or something, 1%. Well, um, what they found was that if they just put a dollar bill, just a single dollar bill in each of the surveys, the response rate jumped way up to like 
I think like 10, 15, 20% or something. Can't remember the exact figures in the studies that I remember looking at back in the day. But the the thinking goes, according to Naj, is that if if you open up a letter and there's just a just a crisp one dollar you know bill in the in the letter, you feel like oh shit, I owe them now. But you don't really owe them, right? Because they just gave you a dollar. You know, you don't have to fill out the survey. But it really increases the likelihood that the, that the surveys will be sent back because no one likes an an unbalanced ledger of fairness, even if they owe someone. No one likes to owe someone anything. People like it to be balanced, right? So, and, and again, just to kind of wrap up this idea, the idea, some of you might be thinking, well, geez, you know, spending all that money. Well, sometimes research is very valuable, you know, customer opinion, you know, community opinion is, can be extremely valuable to some companies, not only for just their goodwill of trying to deliver a good service, but also for the bottom line, right? If you understand the demographics better and the preferences of your community better, then you're going to make a lot more money. And so spending that much money on each survey actually is worth it to them. Okay, so that's a ledger of fairness, which we'll get into more in a second. But other concepts are entitlement. So we build entitlement as we give. So I basically described that earlier. You know, when you give something to someone in your family, whether it be money or a gift or love or attention or respect or grace, you know, when you give something to someone, you you gain entitlement. You've gained entitlement to future giving from that from that person. When you send a dollar bill in the mail to someone uh, at a house, you've gained entitlement. They owe you the survey back. Another concept here, important concept of loyalty. We build loyalty after a lot of reliable back and forth of giving and receiving. Uh, Naj was also, uh, he would point out that we have a human need to be loyal, that it's it's a drive that's in us to be loyal to other people not loyal in in the sense that it's often used but more loyal i in in the words i think of is attachment right it's like loyal in the attachment sense when you have a strong attachment to someone you you know like if um if if a coworker who i'm not that attached to and not that loyal to in the Naj sense, has a wedding in Hawaii and invites me, I, I will be only kind of likely to go. Say my coworker's like, oh man, it's in Hawaii, it's going to be great. I, I really want you to come to Hawaii for, for this wedding. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, there's, there's an expense there. I, I don't, you know, maybe maybe we're not going to work together forever, and I, maybe our relationship is only kind of temporary. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I, in my the the, the nausea would interpret that as well. I I don't really have a loyal feeling towards this person because I'm not that close to them. Whereas, if my brother got married in Hawaii and said this is exact same thing. I really want you to come, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be great. I, I would much be much more likely to go because I am loyal to, to him. Um, another aspect of loyalty is that we're 
loyal to our parents. This was a big part of Naja's theory is that we're all born into our families with an initial need to be loyal to our parents. We mimic them. We talk like them. We adopt their viewpoints. We adopt their religions sometimes. We uh, attend their birthday parties. We go to Hawaii when they ask us to. We might even walk like them and talk like them and and follow in similar paths. We might get a similar kind of job, get a similar education level. This is all being loyal to our parents. And I'll get into when that goes wrong in a second. There's also the concept of trustworthiness, which is a very important thing that Naj talked about. It's built over time, trustworthiness between people and families. And when the ledger of fairness is balanced, uh, over time, it builds this trustworthiness between people. Um, basically, uh, one kind of micro way of looking at this is when, so you walk home, you come home, and you walk up to your to your spouse and you say, I, I love you, I missed you, kiss, I'm glad to see you. Uh, you would only do that if you trusted that your partner would reciprocate, Right. If you walked in the door and you and you had the, you had an impulse, let's say you walk in the door and you have this inner impulse to walk up to your spouse and and kiss your spouse and say, "How's it going?" But there's this other part of you that's like, "Well, what if what if my partner doesn't reciprocate? Because you know my partner often doesn't really reciprocate. So I don't. So that's trust, right? You're like, eh, I don't really trust my partner to receive this well. I don't really trust my partner to give back." Or, you know, I just, I don't know, I just, I'm predicting I'm going to get hurt. And so that's an example of a imbalance in ledger of fairness and a breakdown of the entitlement system going back and forth and therefore much less trustworthiness between the family members. Another important thing here to point out that I always point out in class is that there's a, there are relationships that are symmetrical and there are relationships that are asymmetrical. Uh, meaning that the relationship between spouses is symmetrical and the relationship between parents and children is asymmetrical. And this all relates to Naj's ledger of fairness in the following ways. So when spouse, so I've been talking about people the same age, you know, spouses giving to spouses, and this is all seen as symmetry, meaning that you you give as much as you get. The, when things are going well between a married couple they are get they are giving just as much as they're receiving. Now again, there's no empirical measure for giving and receiving, but but they but there's a, but I hope you get my in the sense of the model and the metaphor, you, you're giving and, and receiving equally. Well, when it comes to parents and children, parents give to their children way way more than the children give back, right? Especially when the kids are really young, the parents are giving the children every single bit of food they're eat, the kid is eating. They're, they're helping the kids get dressed in the morning. They're paying attention to every little thing the kid is doing. They're really trying to figure out if the kid is comfortable. They're really trying to make sure the kid is fed well. They're really, you know, watching out for the kid's safety when they're walking down the street. The, the parents are really concerned with giving love and attention and all this, you know, there's just this ton of giving from parents to children. Children don't really give back much, right? And it, and it should be expected that way, right? Because they're just developmentally not at that point. Uh, 
for for very young children, they don't even really understand that parents care or could care, and they're just you know they they just don't have the capacity to understand that the parents would even have feelings, let alone uh, feelings enough to actually give back to them. So, so there's it's a very asymmetrical relationship, and it's a it's on its surface you would say wow huge imbalance in the ledger of fairness, but that is not really the case. You know, humans don't operate that way. It's all about co- context, and so the the way in which children give back is that they give loyalty, and they give uh, back by doing their duty. So, you know, parents have bumper stickers that say, "My kid is an honor student," and you know, there's a lot of pride that parents will take in their children's achievements, getting an A on a test doing well in soccer, being popular. This is what this is how kids give back to their parents is by doing their duty, by being a good citizen, by making their parents proud. That's how kids give back to their parents. Now, it could be argued that the kids are actually giving to themselves because they're building their own life and their career, but you know, any parent will tell you that yeah, that's one of the best gifts a kid could ever give me, you know. I don't I don't need the kid to give me a diamond ring or a or a card at Mother's Day. What I need my kid to do is to do well in school, to stay out of trouble, to be a good person and to be to be happy. You know, if my kid builds a happy life, that is all the gift I need as a parent. I don't need anything else. And so in this way, it's a it's a very uh, different sort of situation regarding giving and taking, right? It looks very different than the relationship between two brothers or between two spouses. Okay. Um, the last thing I'll say about that is that when you don't allow kids to give to parents, that can create problems. There's actually a According to Naj, there's a there's a human need to be able to give. You actually get a little bit of self esteem when you give in this way. So, some parents might be raised very poorly as children themselves, and then when they become parents, they're like, "Look, I don't want to burden my kids with anything. I don't want to make my kid give anything to me. It's just going to be a total one directional me giving to the kid totally." And then when the kid decides to uh, try to do well in school to make the the parents proud, and the parents are like, "Hey, don't worry about doing well in school. It's totally fine with me if you fail out of school. It's it's, it's just you know do what you want. It doesn't matter to me." Well, not necessarily true, but sometimes if this if this is a overall pattern, the kid develops into this very strange human being who doesn't know how to give to anybody. And either becomes really dependent or narcissistic or something, because you you need to give an opportunity to kids to actually give back to you through their duty. You have to be affected, you know. You have to be like, you have made me so proud. Thank you so much for doing well in school this year. Uh, I or man, when I was watching you try really hard in the soccer field, that meant a lot to me. It really, really meant a lot to me. I was really proud of you in that moment. What a gift you've given me by doing that. If you don't have stuff like that, it, it in a nutshell, it kind of screws kids up. <laughs> All right. So what about pathology? How did Naj see pathology? 
Well, again, when there's an imbalance in the ledger, that's when pathology comes around. Um, and what would happen in a family when there's an imbalance on the ledger, it tends to screw up the giving and taking uh, and it compounds, it sort of cascades on itself, which creates further imbalance and further symptoms in the family. Um, and I'll talk more about that later as well. But another major pathological concept in Naja's theory is invisible loyalties, as I've been talking about. It was his most famous book in 1973. It's his most famous concept, similar to differentiation in Bowen. So what, what are invisible loyalties? So we've already talked about how kids are loyal to their parents and how they basically mimic them and, and sort of become them. This is all an attempt by children to garner favor and, and preferential treatment by the parents. You know, the, the whole idea is, is like, if I, if I act just like you, then you'll have no choice but to love me because you must love yourself, right? And so, uh, you know, that's the whole idea. And, and when that's all going well, then it's all fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with a kid uh, trying to adopt the points of view or the, the hobbies or the interests that their parents have. You know, it's all, it, it works, right? You know, if, if you're really into sports and your kid gets really into sports because they want to hang out with you more, then, you know, all the better. It's that, to some extent, I would say the only reason why sports even exist in our societies because of that. Um, you know, any sports, most sports fans like myself, when they look back on their childhood is, uh, has, a, there's a lot of, uh, experiences with older siblings and parents anyway. So what's invisible loyalties? Well, when there is trouble in a family, your loyalty to your family of origin may become ambivalent or denied. So, so in other words, if you grow up in a family where there's abuse or neglect or just bad parenting, or maybe your parents made you split your loyalty between two different parents through a divorce, maybe there, there wasn't giving to the child enough, maybe you didn't, you didn't allow the kid to give back to you enough, maybe there's war trauma or poverty or societal oppression or just something that's not good for you and the family growing up. What can happen is that your loyalty toward your parent can become sort of uh, difficult. Like in a very uh, easy example, say that your father was physically abusive. Well, when you're 10 years old, you're looking at him and you're thinking, I, I want to be loyal to him. You know, this is all basically unconscious. I want to be loyal to him. I want his love. But I hate the guy, and I don't respect him, and I think he's a jerk, and I don't want to be anything like him. I want to be the direct opposite of him. And so you you have this thing pulling you in two different directions. On one hand, you want to be loyal, and you want his love. On the other hand, you really don't want to be loyal, and you really don't care about his love, or you don't think you're ever going to get his love. So what Naj said is in this situation, when you're ambivalent about this loyalty, you become invisibly loyalty loyal, which is basically another word for unconsciously loyal. It's, it's, it's part of his metaphoric model that helps it make it more simple. That's what I was talking about earlier. It's like he took psychodynamic language and just made it easier to understand. You know, because a lot of people are like, what do you mean by unconscious? What does that mean? Well, invisible is just makes so much more sense, right? At least to some people. Anyway, so 
when you have ambivalent or conflicted loyalty towards a parent, it needs to go underground. It needs to become invisible. So you're still loyal to that parent, but you just don't know it or you can't acknowledge it or you're in denial of it or something. You know, you still are desperate for love and attention from your abusive father, but at the same time, you just cannot accept loyalty towards him. You, you know, you, you want to be loyal deep down, but consciously you're like, I don't want to be loyal to that asshole. So the idea is, is that through this process, through your unconscious loyalty or your invisible loyalty, you actually become very similar to your bad parent, but you just don't know you're acting like them. You know, for example, let's say your father cheats on your mother. He's an abusive guy, and he also happens to cheat on your mother a lot, and you know it as a kid. Well, so at this point, you, your, your unconscious mind wants to be loyal to your father, wants to be just like him, wants to cheat on your spouse just like him so you can finally get the love and attention. So that's the whole idea. It's not a conscious thing, right? So the whole idea is, is like, if I act just like him, maybe I'll finally get the love and attention that I've always wanted from him. And so there's a part of you deep down, invisibly loyal, who wants to cheat. So you could see, you know, the whole idea is if I cheat on my wife, then maybe my dad will love me. You know, it's not a rational thought, but that's, that's Naj's idea of what this is about. Um, and so, uh, so, but on the surface, you're like, well, I don't want to be anything like that asshole. He cheated on mom. Like, I don't want to be like that. It's terrible. So, so there's the invis- there's the visible part and the invisible part. Well, let's say you grow up and you get married, and you you're really good about not cheating. You're really you're really good. You avoid infidelity all the time, but you quote unquote cheat on your spouse by playing golf ten times a week. <laughs> so you're not cheating, right? But you're basically doing the exact same thing that your dad did, but just instead of women, it's golf. So, and if you asked yourself, are you anything like your father? You'd be like, no way. I'm not anything like my dad. He cheated on my mom all the time. I've never cheated on my wife. But anyone watching from the outside would say, well, yeah, that's great, but you're also exactly like him in that you neglect her and uh, make her feel unloved because of this constant activity with golf. As another example, let's say that you grow up as a child and your mother criticizes you a lot. Your mother is criticizing the way you walk and talk and the way, you know, your friends aren't cool enough or the way you dress isn't good enough or you're too fat or something. Your mother criticizes you a lot. And you are, again, ambivalent about your loyalty. On one hand, you deeply want love and attention from your mom, and so you think the road to that is to be loyal and to be just like her, which means to be critical like her. But on the visible side, you're like, well, I don't want to be critical like my mom. That's stupid. That's terrible. I know how horrible it is to be criticized. I'm never going to criticize anybody in my life. So you grow up and you... you find people who are easily criticized. Maybe they never get a job or they're an alcoholic or something. 
and then you proceed to criticize them all the time. But you feel justified because your spouse is a deadbeat alcoholic, and you're just like, well, of course I'm going to criticize him all the time. He he does he's, he's worthless. He he's never had a job. He drinks all the time. He he's totally self destructive. So you're you're totally loyal to your mom because you are being just like her and this is all an attempt to gain her love and and affection in a very indirect manner um and it rarely works by the way but uh you're you're being totally loyal to your mom but at the same time you're in it's invisible to you because you think the criticism that you're giving to your spouse is justified but the only reason why it's justified is because you managed to find someone and maybe even socialize them to be criticizable. All right. Another pathology here, according to Naj, is called destructive entitlement. This is a very important concept as well. So you got invisible loyalty and destructive entitlement. These two are very important. So basically, this the concept goes like this. You grow up in a family where you're a child, and you are not given enough love and attention by your family. And and so you, you have this sense as a child that you have an, an imbalance in your ledger of fairness. You know, you're, you're 10 years old, and you, and you just have this inner sense like, man, I am getting ripped off by my family. Uh, I'm not getting enough attention. I'm not getting enough love. You might even consciously say, I'm not getting enough money. I'm not getting enough this and that. Um, you know, my brother got a new pair of shoes and I didn't get a pair, new pair. Of, I, actually, I just want to point out one of the most common family therapy complaints that I would get from kids is that their parents don't buy them enough stuff. And when it came down to it after much exploration and healing, what we would all realize is it had nothing to do with money and everything to do with love and attention. And so kids will talk in terms of the ledger of fairness. They'll be like, how come he got that and I didn't get that? And in a bit of that is normal, but when it becomes really pronounced and conflictual, it's because it's much easier to talk about getting a new pair of shoes than it is to getting love and attention. But anyway, so destructive entitlement. So you're growing up, you're a kid in the family, and you aren't getting enough love and attention or material goods or respect or safety or something. You're just, you just know you're not getting enough and so you grow up and you emerge from your family of origin into adulthood and you have this just this nagging sense that you are owed something you know when you're 10 and 5 and 15 you're owed something by your parents your parents haven't given you enough love and attention yet and so you're growing up and you're just like man my parents owe me i have been you know really ripped off in this transaction here especially if you worked really hard in school and really tried to help make your parents proud of you. You really will feel resentful of that. Well, then as an adult, you emerge into the world and you're walking around with what Naj called destructive entitlement. You feel entitled to much more than you actually deserve and you will destructively enact that entitlement on other people. So the idea goes is that a very common scenario of analysis here is as a parent when because you have destructive entitlement you know you you feel entitled to things because you were 
neglected, abused, mistreated as, as a child. There's a reason for it. It's not like you're just born with a destructive entitlement. The destructive entitlement came from some some are justified, but at the same time, here you are as an adult and you're treating your spouse badly. You're treating your kids badly. You're not giving your kids enough love and attention. And the cycle continues. That's destructive entitlement. And that process of destructive entitlement being passed down through the generation is what the generations is what Naj called the revolving slate. Um, I could get into the metaphor, but um, hope you understand that. He also had an, an idea called parentification. And I'm, I don't know if he invented it, but it's definitely a big uh, word, big concept in family therapy. And if he did invent it, good for him. But I'm guessing he didn't invent it because I'm guessing other people before him or are around the same time were talking about parentification as well. I don't know. But anyway, one of his main ideas of pathology was parentification in which a child is, is made into a parent or is elevated beyond their years, you know. Uh, both parents are alcoholic, and so the oldest kid is parentified and has to take care of the younger kids. And so this really creates a an imbalance in the ledger of fairness. When you parentify a kid, uh, it creates pathology for everyone. Okay. So again, the main things here are the ledger of fairness, the destructive entitlement that people will retain and act out later on, and loyalties and invisible loyalties. We're, we're always trying to be like our parents in, in an attempt to gain their love and attention. Okay, well, what about the practice of therapy? How does, how does Naj and other uh, and contextual family therapists, what, do, what do, exactly do they do in therapy? Well, from the onset here, I will tell you that whenever there's any talk in any podcast or lecture or anything about the the practice or method of a particular therapy model it's it it just needs to be said it's it's almost impossible to describe in words how or what it looks like to do contextual family therapy um you know there are certain models that might be a little easier like a super manualized cognitive therapy is probably easy to describe but 90 per 95% of models you really have to absorb the theory watch some examples, try it out yourself, read some more. It's, it's a process. And so uh, in my little lecture here about the methodology, I just have to say, like, if you don't get a sense of it, don't worry about it because it's, it's not um, easily described in words. Um, you know, I always like to use plumbers as an example. Imagine and I actually ran into this because I actually did some plumbing when I was doing a renovation of, of a house. I actually um, was trying to save money and tried to figure out how to um, re-pipe my own house. I, I learned, I, I, I quote-unquote learned how to sweat pipes and stuff. And um, basically through trial and error, I eventually got it right. But um, back then it was like pre-YouTube instructional videos and everything I could find that would teach me how to, how to sweat pipes was from just in written form, right? It would be a book that would just describe how you, um, how you do it. And it was really hard to translate the words into how to do plumbing, (laughs) which you can imagine, right? 
uh, you know, now you go to YouTube and it, they'll just show you step by step. You do this, you do that, you place the flame here, you do this, you blah, blah, blah. And would, it would just make it so much easier. It's similar to therapy. Describing therapy in words is one thing. Imagine if you actually experienced it or saw the therapy actually taking place before you. It's a much different experience when you see that anyway. So, all right. So, um, Nausea's contextual family therapy can be brief or it can be long-term. Because it's basically psychoanalytic in its foundation, it allows for long-term contextual family therapy. All right, who comes to session? Well, in Nausea's model, really as many people as possible. I think Whitaker was famous for inviting just everyone in the family, like we're talking like 20 people to sessions. I don't think Naj goes that far, but he definitely was on the on the one end of the spectrum in that he would say, let's get the parents, let's get the siblings, let's get the aunts and uncles, let's get the grandparents. And he would say that it's okay for parents to see their, uh, you know, their, their parents work on their marriage because it helped the kids understand that they don't have to give. So the whole idea is, is like, when you're a kid and you see your parents struggling with their marriage, you as a kid sort of feel obligated to help them with that. And that puts undue pressure and it parentifies the kids. And so when you when you say you bring everyone into the family session and part of the session you're actually working on the marriage and a lot of people will be like, well, shouldn't, shouldn't the kids be gone? Should, shouldn't, shouldn't they be excused from the family session? Because you don't want the kids seeing the parents go through those things, you know, it's a peek behind the curtain and, and it's not helpful. Well, what Naj would say is like, no, 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 you need to have kids see that so that they can be off the hook from having to be parentified. It'll help them to be relieved. Like, oh, I don't have to take care of my parents. I can, I can not be parentified. Because one of the things about parentification in systemic understanding is that kids will actually volunteer for the role as well as they're elected. It's something I always emphasize with my students is because we often will say, oh, that kid was parentified and it, he, was a, he was a victim of parentification. And in one sense, that's true, but it sort of denies the reality that children know how to, uh, how to become different roles. You know, kids will, actu- kids will actually, uh, to some extent, willingly move forward into those roles. They, they have a choice and they step forward and, and act it. Anyway, another uh, really major uh, tenant of the um, Naj's contextual family therapy is multi-directed partiality. This is a, a a phrase that's often on the licensing exam. So whenever people study for the licensing exam, they're always, you know, and their cue card is multi-directed partiality. What is it? Well, basically it's an attitude that the therapist embodies and it's also behaviors. Basically it, the, you know, it it's in the phrase. So partiality meaning being partial or being empathetic or uh, having positive regard. And you don't just direct it at one person, but you direct it at everyone. So multi-directed partiality. Or another another phrase would be like um, giving empathy and understanding to everyone in the room, which can be very hard when people are in conflict with each other. For example, in, in couples therapy, they, ha- they had a huge fight. And they had come to your office and you, with one spouse, you're like, wow, I could really see how he was hurting your feelings. Like, you know, you're telling me that that really hurt your feelings. I really get that. I really get that. 
well, the husband's going to be like, hey, therapist, what are you doing? You're, you're siding with my wife on this? Well, this, then you got to turn to him and you got to tell me your story. And you, wow, I can really see why her hurt would be confusing to you. That really makes sense to me. That's multi-directed partiality. Now, I will say that this is much harder uh, than it sounds, uh, depending on how it sounds to you, but it is extremely hard because there's so much countertransference in marriage and family therapy. There's just, I, I always tell people that there, there are three levels of countertransference uh, in general, on average. You have individual therapy, which has by far the lowest level of countertransference potential. Now, certainly some clients can produce massive levels of countertransference, but in general, uh, much less. Then you have family therapy, which, which has a, a huge jump from individual to family therapy. In family therapy, you have quite a bit of countertransference potential on average. And then a jump up from there is couple therapy. Couple therapy has, in my experience, the most countertransference of all, and it is intense. And people will say like, well, hey, you know, I was treating someone with borderline individually, and she gave me just tons of countertransference. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. Imagine two borderline people who are married to each other in session. Imagine how much countertransference you would have then, because that happens. So it's not like, you know, families and couples don't have personality disordered people in them. It just, it, 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 it really, the, the likelihood of someone in the room having a personality disorder increases with the more people you include in the room, right? Anyway, so that's multi-directed partiality, and it's much more complicated than it sounds, but anyway. Contextual family therapists are non-directive, meaning they don't give advice, and they try to trust the process. So it's not skills-based, it's process-based. Contextual family therapists try to get people talking to each other. They really want everyone in the room to express themselves and to hear each other and understand each other. Contextual family therapists are insight-based at times, meaning they try to promote insight. They try to help family members understand Naj's theory. They'll, they'll, they might even refer, like, it sounds like the ledger of fairness is, is, in, is out of balance today. Let's talk about that. How are we going to bring it back into balance? So they might use Naj, Naj language to help change that in session. So they're trying to help people understand the process of, of the family system. Uh, family ther- contextual family therapists will use what they call crediting, meaning that you point out when people are giving or not giving. So you know, a kid does something nice to mom and you're like, man, that was really great that you just gave that gift to your mom, blah, blah, blah. So you're you're trying to you're trying to give credit where credit's due. Contextual family therapists are also really focused on accountability, meaning that the therapist points out when the clients um, have a responsibility to the give and take. So they might you might point to someone in the family and say like, you realize that you're responsible for giving back to this family, and I, I don't see you doing that. So. That would be only after you had a good relationship with that person. But but contextual family therapists don't shy away from those kind of confrontations around the ledger of fairness. Contextual family therapists try to p- promote mutual trust between people, try to help them to build that trustworthiness that I was talking about earlier. So if the you know couple comes in and they're like, well, the other day I walked home and I gave my wife a kiss and she didn't reciprocate. She just sort of ignored me. 
well, the contextual family therapist would try to get each person's point of view, and then they'd say, like, well, how how are we going to make this right? And and what's a way of behaving at home that would actually help promote a a balance to the give and take between you? Or to the wife, you say, why were you enacting destructive entitlement in that moment? Was it something that had to do with what your husband had done earlier, or did it have, does it have to do with your childhood, or what? So there would be that explore, that exploration. Contextual family therapists differ from a lot of other family therapists in that they don't try to reframe things. Reframing things is basically when a therapist uses a form of cognitive therapy or narrative therapy to try to reframe a situation in a better light. So say a kid is like... Um, you know, really angry at his father. The kid's just like, yeah, my father, you know, in session, you know, he's like, you, you are a jerk and you're always at work and this sort of thing. And a reframe would, would from the therapist would be like, wow, you know, Johnny really loves, loves you a lot. He loves you so much that he's willing to get angry at you for not being home more often. So that's a reframe, right? And it's a, it's an attempt to help people understand each other better and help them bond better and heal. Well, contextual family therapists don't reframe. They, they don't do that. They don't put a positive spin in that way. Instead, they, they want people to communicate to each other how they feel, and they want people to empathize with each other. So the, the kid's angry and, you know, Dad, you're, you're, you know, you're such a jerk and you're a bad father and you're never home. And instead of reframing, the contextual family therapist will be like, I'm really hearing you, you know, let's communicate, let's talk about this. And then to the dad, how do you feel about this? You know, what's going on? And it's more put on the two individuals to communicate about it rather than the therapist sort of imposing a perspective. Contextual family therapists also involve themselves in what they call exoneration, in which the therapist attempts to help the client see positive intent of weird behavior in the family. So basically uh, it's, it's an attempt to point out invisible loyalties sometimes. So say there's that couple that comes in and you, the husband's golfing all the time and the, and the wife is really hurt by that. And so there, the, the, after some exploration, the contextual family therapist might exonerate the husband by pointing out, well, you know, we explored his childhood and he was, his father was a really bad father, and his father also uh, cheated on his mom a lot. And so he's he's just being invisibly loyal. He he really wants the love of his father, and this is his way of trying to get it. And so that's why he's golfing all the time. Um, so that's sort of a rough example of exoneration. They also use rejunction. This is probably the most important thing. And this is getting people to give to each other again, to balance that ledger of fairness, get, get it moving. So a lot of families and couples and individuals, honestly, who come to therapy uh, complaining about relationships are, are not in a process of giving and taking with other people. A lot of time they're sort of isolated and, and they've given up. And what the contextual family therapist does is they try to uh, create, you know, create a rejunction, meaning you want to rejoin people back together. You want to get them giving and taking to each other again. Um, you want them to interact more and trust each other and sort of build that, that trustworthiness through a lot of giving and taking to each other. 
Contextual family therapists also, from the very beginning, were very interested in genograms or complicated clinical family trees in which three generations are mapped out and analyzed. You look at the kids, the parents, and the grandparents. You try to map out the the revolving slate, the destructive entitlement being passed down through the generations, the invisible loyalties. You're you're trying to map all that out on a on a family tree. Okay. So how do I use it? Well, I, I dipped into this a little bit already, but again, I, I don't use uh, contextual family therapy explicitly. It, it's not it's not really in my head when I am practicing. But like I said, I sort of use it when I'm working on attachment, which I'm using all the time. Um, I, I also imagine that I'm similar to contextual family therapists in a lot of ways in that I tend to be non-directive. I try to be anyway. I tend to get people talking. Um, I, I use, a, I guess, a version of multi-directed partiality for sure. I, I really am interested in helping people give and take to each other. I'm really interested in having people trust each other. I'm really interested in helping people give to each other more. You know, f- for example, um, earlier this week, I was working with this couple and they had a breakdown of trust and had some difficult times. And I was, uh, you know, having them talk about it and it, it just didn't seem to be moving forward in terms of what Naj would call like a re rejunction, meaning that they, they were sort of stuck in a, in a place of not giving, not trusting to give. And so I asked one of the spouses, I, I was like, so do you think you need your, your spouse to apologize to you? So I was trying to give the opportunity for someone to apologize and give that gift of apology. And he said, he said, no, I, I, I don't, I don't need an apology. And, and at first I thought, oh, okay, well, I guess he doesn't need, I guess that's not on his mind. And then as time went on, I was, I was thinking, well, I, I think, I don't know, I'm really picking up, and this is internal dialogue. I, I'm really picking up that he wants her to apologize. <laughs> Um, and so I asked again, I was like, so are you sure you don't need her to apologize? Because I kind of hear that in your language. And he, he's like, no, 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 I don't need her to apologize. And at that moment, I realized, oh, he doesn't want to force her to apologize, but he really does want her to apologize. <laughs> and so I sort of went against the contextual family therapy way and became much more directive. And I just told the wife to apologize. I just said, you know, maybe an apology is, is good now. And, you know, she went for it and, and it really got things moving. You know, she apologized really well. And then he gave back with very much of appreciation of the apology. And it, it, it felt intuitively to me, like there was a rejunction. There was a, a rebalancing of the ledger and things felt like they had become unstuck. So that's one way in which I sort of use contextual family therapy. All right. So let's conclude with the critique of contextual family therapy. So some people say it's too simple. They say that it compared to psychodynamic or object relations theory, it's, it's, it doesn't really explain enough and and I would agree with that personally, because I really take to the complexity of psychodynamic and systems theory. Um, that isn't to say that it's worthless. I'm just saying it's a matter of appeal. You know, some people 
really like simpler theories, not because they're stupid, but because they're just more elegant or something, you know. Um, internal family systems is another one that people really love when they get exposed to it. And I find it to be a, a very simplified version of object relations. Um, anyway, other people will critique contextual family therapy for being too complex, not too simple, but too complex. They'll say that, look, you know, part of your model requires that you explain what's happening to your clients and some uneducated clients are not going to understand what you're talking about. I don't know if I agree with that, but that's what some people say. Um, some people have said that contextual family therapy is too much like capitalism. You know, it's all about ledgers and merits and credits and entitlement. You know, it's it's basically accounting and capitalism talk in regards to uh, human experience and relationships and stuff. And some people just don't don't like that. They they don't like the fact that our society has become so minded towards capitalism. You know, we we say the phrase buy in. Well, we got to, you know, did you get buy-in from the client? Did you get them to buy into the idea? It's like buying in, you know, like it's all about capitalism and about materialism and and privileging the exchange of goods and the balancing of ledgers. Uh, some people just don't like that. And some people make, my mentor, um, Phil Cushman, made an extremely excellent argument along these lines that I cannot repeat right now. So just know that at one time, Phil Cushman completely convinced me of the dangers of the amount of capitalism metaphors we use in our society. He, he also had a big problem with, well, <laughs> anyway. Um, another critique of contextual family therapy is that it's hard to confirm through empirical research because it, it's not easily manualized and any any form of therapy that isn't easily manualized is hard to empirically verify. Um, I would say that, that I don't care because um, even the quote-unquote manualized treatments need to be followed by the manual in order for it to be um, consistent with the research. So I like the fact that the practice of psychotherapy for me and many other people like me is much more of an intuited um, practice and not a prescription Okay. Other people will criticize contextual family therapy because it doesn't emphasize sociocultural political factors enough. For example, like gender. Um, off the top of my head, I can imagine that, you know, because, because of sexism in a lot of families, you're going to find that the wives in heterosexual families are made to do much more. They're, they're, they have to work more. They, they have to clean the house more. They have to take care of the kids more and and they will internalize sexism to the point where they feel like that's the way it's supposed to be. And so everyone uh, in situations like this when the ledger of fairness is balanced the reality might be that the woman is doing much much more work. She might even be carrying the load for the emotional well-being and the uh, the quality of the relationship between her and her husband, you know, because um, that often is a feminine responsibility as well. So uh, just because 
people feel like the ledger of fairness is balanced doesn't mean it actually is. Because when you take into account uh, privilege and internalized sexism, internalized racism, other kinds of things, you, you realize, oh, you know, you guys need to work on those things before you can even really know what the balance of ledger would be, if I'm wording that right. <laughs> anyway, some people would criticize uh, contextual family therapy because some people don't like the notion that you can get m- merit and credit by just being a good kid. They they say like I don't, that doesn't make any sense. How how do you how do you gain how do you give to your parents by just being a good kid? That doesn't make any sense. You're not you're not giving to your parents. They just don't like that. I like it. I think it's fine. Some people will criticize uh, critique cr- contextual family therapy because it's too optimistic about families. I mean, what about some families that are extremely toxic and abusive? A contextual family therapists. Uh, from what I understand, and Naj himself as well, were extremely optimistic about it. They're just like, oh, no, no, you know, just, you know, continue going down the road with contextual family therapy and things will work out. You just you just have to believe in the model. And, and I don't know if that's always true. I think there are some times when pathology is to such an extent that it makes it almost impossible for really any any family therapy model to work. But proponents of any theory are often extremely overgeneralizing of their the success of their model because they're in love with their model. But anyway, um, an, another criticism, critique I saw of contextual family therapy was that Christians, some Christians, Christian counselors, have criticized contextual family therapy because you're, you shouldn't be loyal to your parents first. You should be loyal to God first, is what they'll say. And I'll just let that one end there. For me, my critique of contextual family therapy is that multi-directed partiality is, you know, it's one of the main pillars of the approach, and I consider it to be too simple. It's, you know, therapy family therapy, couples therapy is so much more complex than simply just being partial towards everyone in the room. There's times when that's great. And there are times when I intuit correctly that that is not the way to go. That sometimes you want to be partial towards more towards one person than another. There's really no rules to therapy in that way. There's, And I have found that you really just have to feel what's happening and and understand what's happening and then react from that. And so I think being locked into a multidirectional partiality mode might actually limit one's ability to react flexibly to the situation. But that's a pretty minor um, critique. Overall, I would say that as long as you consider the sociocultural political critique, which I think is there, which you can apply to the vast majority of theories put forward, like Bowen and others like, like that, um, as long as you really understand how privilege and power works, uh, or at least strive to understand and strive to uh, have that influence the way that you use theory, I think contextual family therapy is great. And I think it's a it's a wonderful way. And I, I imagine it, it would really work, mostly because it is basically talking about attachment. Like I said, when you have give and take between two people, it builds trust, it builds attachment, builds secure attachment, you know, when you come home and you kiss your spouse on the, on the cheek and, and you say you, you missed them and they turn to you and they reciprocate that, that makes you feel securely attached. You feel like, okay, 
we're together on this. We're, de- we're dedicated to each other. We have each other's back. And I'm not alone. And I feel good. I feel, you know, whereas if you come home and you say nice things to your spouse and your spouse blows you off, completely throws you off kilter because you don't feel safe anymore. You don't feel attached. You feel alone. You just feel like I'm just alone in this world. And that's a very terrible feeling for people. No one likes to feel alone. People want to feel close to other people. They want to feel like other people have their back, like they're loyal, like they're dedicated, like they're attached. And so I think Naj's contextual family therapy actually is headed in that direction completely, but just doesn't use that language. All right. Well, let me know what you think of contextual family therapy. Uh, Do you even like episodes like this? And uh, if you have other ideas for deep dives, please keep them to yourselves because um, I have a backlog right now. And uh, and I'm one of those people that will feel compelled to um, get to every patron thing. And so... Um, I have a lot on my plate, um, and I have a goal of mine, actually, to get all those things off of my plate one day, maybe in a year or so. Who knows? But anyway, so, yeah, thanks for joining me, everyone. Again, thanks for becoming a patron. You're super cool. Uh, also, save the date for August 2018 for the 10-year anniversary show. We don't, well, we don't have a date yet, but save the month. Um I know a lot of people wanted to come to the event in January and couldn't make it and have been saying, uh, when's the next one? Because I'm definitely coming to the next one. And we're trying to figure out a venue situation because the the Antioch venue was too small, uh, strangely, which I never would have predicted. So uh, anyway, we'll try to figure all that out. That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please, please, please take care of yourself and Allow other people to give, and when that happens, give back, because you deserve it, and so do they.